0: Hello, David Penn here again, and welcome back to the Professor Penn Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us, and I want to thank the Free People of America, Free People Radio. I want to thank Royce White, Call Me Crazy, uh, all the people that are contributing to making this community and to uh, working together to get the word out about what we need to do to enhance human well-being, to defeat those that would kill us, and to make a better uh, world for our children so if you like the content please click the subscribe button please uh, let us know you like it and uh, we're going to be looking forward to uh, working with you together for as long as the lord lets us do so Uh, today uh, i want to pick up on the theme we uh, were working on last time last time uh, we uh, were looking at the uh, huge immigration or the huge migration of uh, predominantly Eastern European and European people into the United States starting in the late 1800s and that lasted, well, we're still having uh, immigration, but that European wave ended in the 1950s. And those immigrants brought with them the European intellectual tradition, which was really an ideology that was foreign to the American experience. You know, the American experience was encapsulated in the preamble to the Constitution. It was about a community. It was about we the people. It was about the general welfare, about ensuring domestic tranquility, which means peace, which rests on justice, and justice rests rests on truth. It was a, a document which protected the rights of the minority against the tyranny of the majority it was a document that protected the human basic rights the human rights of the minority against the tyranny of the majority and when these european immigrants came and they brought that european intellectual tradition with them it was a very different tradition it was a tradition that sought to overthrow the the status quo of europe and they brought it with them and they went right to work on the status quo of America. So we had that going on. You know, at first it was emanating from the academies, from our universities, from our colleges, and we went over some of the key people. But there was thousands and tens of thousands of these academics that uh, deployed themselves across the entire country, our entire you know intellectual infrastructure. Many of them went into applied science. It was the um, overturning or the uh, transition away from a judeo-christian foundation of the country to a darwinist malthusian foundation of the country and that transition is complete now we live in a country today that is dominated by the scientific method by the uh, darwinian model of evolution the diminution of faith and We've turned out progressive generations, and I like that word progressive because they call themselves progressives. Progressive generations of people that have less and less reliance on faith and spirit and more and more reliance and faith in the material. And we live in a country today where we have a phenomenal material high going on, and that is generated predominantly by science and the scientific method. And we have a phenomenal military infrastructure which is uh also a product of science and we went through that you know the atomic bomb on one side and the cultural marxists on the other so here we are uh, trying to deal with what i say as an experiment i try not to get into um, evil motives although i know they're there uh, i know there's very evil intentionality involved in some of this but I look at it as an experiment in thought. All the people of this world, the billions of people, we are the web. We have this worldwide web, this digital web. That concept of the web is really a Northern European spiritual concept about the connectedness of all living things. The web and all of us that are alive, all of us that are alive, that are, have a heartbeat in a mind, We are all connected to each other, and our human will, our wills, are connected in a communal uh, expression, and that expression has generated for us the modern world in which we are living. So when people say, those people, or that government, or, no, no, that's us. We are the government. We, the people, our will be done. And to the extent that we don't exercise our will, to the extent that we don't involve ourselves in the political, that opens the space for others. A very good friend of mine, Thomas the Good, I'm not going to mention his last name just because I didn't sign a release. Thomas the Good said to me many, many, many years ago, government is prosecuted by those who show up. And you know, the people that show up have nothing better to do. We, the people, have all kinds of better things to do in our own minds. We have family to raise, money to make, entertainments to pursue, and we've been raised with the idea that politics is rather unseemly. And that's something we have to deal with. Yes, it is unseemly. I'm a political activist, and I'm shocked, just shocked, by the lying and the backstabbing. And the uh, disreputable conduct that I see are all around me in the political. And it's very difficult for me because in my own personal life, I really uh, pursue truth and and transparency and predictability and dependability. Uh, You know, my, my, my intellectual and spiritual tradition is based on the truth to the extent that I am truthful. I can advance as a human being. If I'm a liar, I'm kind of stuck in the gray world of lies. So my entire life, I've been trying to work to higher and higher levels of truth-telling, higher and higher levels of transparency, which is the opposite of what I'm finding in this political. And I'm relatively new to the political, just as I'm hoping you'll be relatively new to the political. And they make it miserable. These people are so hard to deal with because they are so full of themselves and they're so full of deceit. And this is because we have a political culture that allows for that. And you know what that does? That discourages me from being involved in the political. You know, oftentimes I just want to quit because I don't like the way these people make me feel. And then I remind myself, We, the people, can change the expectations about what politics is all about. We, the people, can demand that politics is about human well-being. We, the people, can demand that anyone involved in politics has to reach the highest levels of integrity, of honesty, of transparency. We can demand it. And if they don't do it, we can vote them out and find people that will Fulfill our desire for a beautiful governance, and we can demand that of our doctors and our lawyers and our architects and our priests all of the people that we rely on for their professional expertise or we rely upon them to represent us. We must remind ourselves that we create this culture together. We, the people, our will. Creates this. So, how do we change this? This is a well being comment. My well being rests upon my truthfulness, upon my honesty. So, if I am seeking a higher level of well being, a higher level of creativity, I must work on my truth telling. I must be honest in myself, with myself. I can't lie to myself. And I certainly can't lie to you. If I pursue honesty in my own life and I pursue it with a dogged determination and I root out every inconsistency in my own thinking, in my own feeling, in my own actions, in my own dealings with other people, I am making a change that affects everything I touch. And if millions and millions of Americans would embrace the concept of honesty and truthfulness and transparency in all of their dealings, the whole world would change overnight. And this is the kind of well-being that we need as a society if we're going to extricate ourselves from the dire situation we find ourselves. You know, I was uh, thinking about current events I haven't really gotten into the current event part of the Professor Penn podcast, but look at this crazy thing that's going on over in, they call, I'm going to say it the way it's written, Palestine, Ohio. I think they call it Palestine. I don't know why, but it's, it's Palestine as in Palestine in the Middle East. And there was a huge environmental disaster there that we're dealing with right now people are making comments that it's a chernobyl level disaster why are we using these kind of chemicals in our daily life has anybody gone through that contradiction has anybody asked themselves why have we developed a society a society where our transport is carrying materials that can destroy a community Or a region or a state, poison our wildlife, our game, kill our people. Where did that come from? Why do we have that? Why do we accept that? And again, because we're experimenting with human consciousness. We are an experiment. A hundred years ago, there was no televisions. There was no smartphones 30 years ago. We are moving so quickly into a technological reality and it's time for us as the people to really go through and inventory what's good about this and what's less good about it and what's bad about it. I am not saying that we do not benefit from the scientific method. We, The people do benefit. We get phenomenal benefits. I like indoor plumbing for a start. I love sewers. I like knowing that if I I step on a nail and I get a blood infection, there's an antibiotic that will save my life. There are many, many innumerable benefits from science. But there are innumerable negatives, and it's time to sort through it. It's time to realize that not every scientific development and invention is good for we the people. It is time for we, the people, to make these decisions because the people that we have elected to represent us and the people that we've uh, seen rise to the heights of power in our uh, government, in our administrative state, or in our corporations, their reliance and belief in science, because they're Darwinists, they don't have a spiritual life, Their belief is all scientific progress is good. And science needs to go in every direction and investigate and produce whatever it produces. And it's time that we're going to have to get together as a people and sort this out. Now, what the technocrats do, what the Darwinists do is they say, you must have a PhD to be involved in this conversation. We are ethicists, we are medical ethicists, we are educated. Well, if we're so educated and we have so many brilliant people running things, why is everything screwed up? Just a question, if you're out there and you're in government and you have a PhD, why are we on the brink of nuclear war? Why is our life expectancy falling? Why are the children not being educated? Why do we have so much poverty? Why is there so much income inequality in the country? If such genius people are running things, why are things so screwed up? And my answer is, because they want it screwed up. Because they're showing up to govern us, and we're letting them govern us. Another word for that is rule over us. I personally do not want to be ruled over. I am the kind of person that will do the right thing every time, that I will respect anyone that has higher skills than me, and I will seek to learn from them with respect. But if someone comes to rule over me and they have a less quality in their honesty or in their transparency, if I obviously see that they're not performing, that they don't have the skills requisite to fulfill the role that they claim they inhabit, I can't respect that. We're not at a point in American history where we can respect the institutions as we have in the past because they've failed us. We cannot continue to have blind faith in those who have abandoned spirit. They just aren't getting the job done. If they were getting the job done, I probably wouldn't be podcasting. I'm doing this solely to wake myself up. It's an exercise of self-exploration that I'm sharing with you in the hopes that you too might be moved to self-explore. So part of the thing before I get into today's agenda, you know, when it comes to well-being, well-being is very simple. It's about connecting yourself to nature. It's about eating properly, what your body needs. And it's about movement. Movement. When we don't move intellectually, we stagnate. When we don't move emotionally, we deny our feelings. When we don't move physically, our bodies break down. Movement is the fundamental cornerstone. Of well being. That's where we start movement. That's why kids run around and dance around and play around. Little kids get up and fall down and get up and fall down. Here's something people don't know the number one predictor for death is the inability to get up off the floor. So if you get down on the floor and you can't get up easily, Your well being can be improved. I don't want to scare anybody, but let's say you can't get up very well. You have arthritis, or you have some kind of other malady, or obesity. It's very difficult for you to get down on the floor and to get up. Let's remember Christ said, Be like a little child. A great exercise, and do it with your doctor's guidance, don't do anything that puts your life at risk. But just get down on the floor and work on getting up. It's a very simple exercise. And when it gets warm in your area, do it on the grass with bare feet. Get on the ground, in the grass, in the dirt, and learn how to get up. And maybe in a future podcast, I'll demonstrate. Because it's a beautiful feeling to be able to get up off the floor with some style. Style is important. You know, there's a few things that we have as human beings that cannot be taken away from us. They can take my freedom. They can take all my money. They can take a lot of things from me, but they can't take my smiles and my cries. They can't take my smiles and my cries. And they can't take my style. That's all my own. Can't take it from me. You can't pry it away from me. So I have my smiles and my cries, and I have my style. And everyone needs to develop their smiles and their cries and their style because then they become authentic. That's what we're looking for, authenticity, honesty, transparency, and just a little idea, being able to get up off the floor. Because you've heard this before, it's not getting knocked down that matters. It's getting up that matters. And that ability to get up physically is a metaphor for us as the American people to be able to get up spiritually. We have to rise up spiritually. That is a critical dimension of our current challenge. Could you please play this first clip about the colonial life
1: People in colonial America had to work hard to make a living. Without the labor-saving machines we enjoy today, they had to meet many of their needs for food, clothing, and shelter through their own effort. All family members worked together to carry out this work. Many times, an extended family would live together in one house on one plot of land. Parents, children, aunts, uncles, cousins, and grandparents all contributed to daily chores. At home, Men and women worked hard, but their responsibilities were usually different. Women took care of the house and the land immediately around it. Cooking and cleaning were time-consuming tasks, and they had to do all that work by hand. Along with handling these household chores, farm wives often helped their husbands. At busy times, like planting and harvesting, they helped in the fields. Men headed their households, and they spent most of their time working. They took responsibility for running the farms and did the planting, plowing, and gathering of crops. They also built their homes and hunted animals for food. Children helped at home too. Young children had tasks like gathering wood and water. Older girls helped their mothers with the household work. Older boys helped their fathers in the fields. Colonial America had three social groups or classes. Most people belonged to the middle class They owned farms or businesses. The small upper class, or gentry, included wealthy farmers, government officials, and lawyers. At the bottom were indentured servants and enslaved Africans. Indentured servants received passage to America on a ship. In return, they agreed to work for a specific period of time for the person who paid for their passage. Once that period was finished, they received land, tools, and other supplies to help them start their own farms. Colonists were able to govern themselves. In 1619, the leaders of Virginia gave free white males the right to vote for representatives they called Burgesses. This was the first representative assembly in the colonies. Other colonies created similar governing bodies, but Britain also passed laws that affected the colonies. Britain would gain financially if the colonies were successful. To ensure this success, Britain passed trade laws that taxed all goods imported to or exported from the colonies. Colonists were part of a triangular trade network. Shippers carried goods from Europe to West Africa, where they were traded for slaves. They took the slaves to the Americas. The people were traded for sugar and other goods. These were carried back to Europe. Most people who bought Africans owned plantations. The Africans tended the crops grown on these large farms and did other work in the plantation house and the fields. Considered property, the Africans had no freedoms. But this did not keep them from developing their own culture. African traditions influenced language, cooking, and music. Life in the colonies could be harsh. Farmers faced bad weather, drought, disease, and the fear of the unknown. But the brave people who first settled in North America would soon create a new nation.
2: Horace Mann was born...
0: Well, that's uh, a very... uh idealized uh, portrayal of life in the uh, early part of this country's history uh, but there's some things here that we really need to think about number 1 these people were out in nature all day every day all day every day this is not modern life uh, many of us never go out in nature anymore we're in a very digitized environment and we've lost the ability, as a, as some of us as people or perhaps all of us as a collective community, we've, we've degraded our ability to be in nature. We're weaker. We're actually statistically, I mean, just biometrically weaker, just weaker compared to the people that grew up in the 50s and 60s. People are getting weaker because we don't have to work as much outside they talked about the families lived together the fathers the mothers the children the grandparents the aunts the uncles the cousins everybody was connected together in a communal effort to survive survival was predicated on community now people can survive atomized and many people are all alone our communities now are moving into a digital space, which kind of bizarre, right? I mean, this is a digital space. I'm saying let's create a community, but actually, I'm looking forward to the day where I can call upon this community and 10,000 of us will meet in the same time, at the same time and in the same place so that we can practice our will publicly and as a group. We thrive as human beings in connection with other human beings. So as far as our well-being goes, it's very important that we're involved in community. I have a community that I'm involved with where I actually I'm involved with actual people, and I'm actually looking at them, and I'm listening to them, and I care about them, and I hope they care about me. As far as the political life goes, our politicians and our political organizations have removed the political-cultural aspects and made hanging around in politics very unpleasant and conflict-orientated. This is by intent, because good people don't want to participate in activities organized by bad people. Very simple. Let's get rid of the bad people, and let's bring good people in and build a political culture nationally, from sea to shining sea, from the north to the south, and from the west to the east. Let us ensue well-being. I know it sounds a little bit fantastic, but when we think about what are these people supposed to be doing for us, only one thing, ensure the general welfare. It's right in the preamble of the Constitution anything else that they're doing, provide for the common defense, not have an offensive military empire with 800 military bases outside the country, most of them with 350 golf courses scattered around the world with a $1 trillion military budget every year. This is not constitutional. This is something that developed because we, the people, were not involved in the political process. I'm not mad about it. It's an experiment. We had an experiment, and it needs to be, the results need to be reviewed. Are we happy with the virgin nuclear war, people starving all over the world, health and well-being on the decline? Are we happy with this? Is this outcome what we seek? And I'm going to say it's not what I seek, and I hope it's not what you seek. So in this thought experience, in this experiment of consciousness, this experiment of humanity, we now have the opportunity to redirect, reconsider, refocus, reformat. And that's what we're doing. We're at a crossroads. Humanity is at a crossroads. We want to take all the good and we want to minimize the bad. So that's what we're working on here on the Professor Penn podcast. That's what I'm working on in my life, and that's what I hope you'll start working on or you are working on in your life. And we're calling out people. We like to call out people on the Professor Penn podcast. Oh, before we move on, you notice at the end of that thing, in very glowing terms, they talked about the business model of the crown. They had the slavery working. They talked about the sugar, which was drugs. And obviously, if you're taking slaves, that's piracy. So there's the business model. They're bragging about it. The original sin of our country was not slavery, in my opinion. Slavery and the subjugation and the genocide against Native peoples, those were not the original sin. They were symptoms of the original sin. The original sin was the business model. Slavery, drugs, piracy. That was the original sin. We need to fix the business model. And that doesn't mean get rid of capitalism. Capitalism was perverted by this crappy business model that was the outgrowth or the experiment in consciousness of men who were evil. It's an evil business model. And let's start to call out some of the foundational <clears throat> people in this. We have on a picture here of uh, Rene Descartes. Uh, I don't think people think of Rene Descartes as evil, uh, and I'm not going to make the comment that Re- Rene Descartes was evil, but we certainly went wrong with Rene Descartes in my opinion. Rene Descartes was a very famous philosopher. He was, if you've heard this before, he was the person that came with came up with I think, therefore, I am. But what Descartes left the world was something called Cartesian dualism. And this is, see, we are the, even if we don't study history, if we don't study philosophy, there's an old biblical quote, there's nothing new under the sun. I am everything that I think and feel. Well, not everything. I'd like to think I come up with some novel, creative ideas. But they're based upon the intellectual framework that has been developed over thousands and thousands of years of human history. And this guy, Descartes, who is famous, came up with this Cartesian dualism, which is there's mind and body, and they're really separate. In other words, there is a spiritual mind I think, therefore I am, which is related to the spiritual world and the body is kind of like an automaton. It goes by itself, it's kind of a machine. And this idea was uptaken so heavily in that European intellectual tradition that over hundreds of years, people gapped their mind from their body. And when I say they gapped, the connection between mind and body was weakened. And we live in a world today where people are really in their heads. I mean, you may be watching this on your digital device with headphones on, laying down, not feeling your body at all. You're completely, and I do it too, so I'm, I don't like to use the word you, I do it, I lay there, and I'm you know, completely in this digitized, spiritualized, or intellectualized environment, where body is not really part of the picture. Think about this juxtaposed with those colonists who are out there every day hunting game to eat, farming to eat, building their own homes. Uh, Freedom. Let's think about freedom. If every technique that you need to live is something that you've mastered yourself, you're free of needing anybody's expertise, you know the full rate you know how to build a house you know how to set a bone you know how to grow the crops you know how to hunt you know how to fish you are self governing that is self governance and then of course, they made a political self governance that went right along with it so those um That experiment in human consciousness, that self-governance, we the people walked away from that because life was difficult. Is our life easier today? That's a question. Is life really easier today? Or have we traded one set of problems for another set of problems? These are the kind of questions we have to work through. I I have to work through it on my own. Uh, You know, I I think I would enjoy the farming life. Um, I don't know it as well. I think that every person should own land, and should I am considering, and I do. We we grow, uh, you know, vegetables at the house, and we try to uh, uh, do as much outside as we can. But we're not very effective at it in my family, and I want to improve that because I want to self-govern. If every family in the country just planted some vegetables in their backyard, that would be a big deal for two reasons. One, we need the food because of the inflation. But number two, it would bind us to the land, and it would bring us into contact with nature, which is the fundamental building block We'll be moving our bodies in nature. That's the fundamental building block of well-being. And so, this Descartes got this Cartesian dualism going with the body as an automaton and the mind. I think, therefore, I am. And our our world has gotten so overbalanced to the intellectual, which the scientific method and the scientific output is the uh, the fruit. Of that Cartesian dualism. And we know that there's something wrong because we watch these sporting events where these athletes come and they're phenomenal in their athletic prowess. And we pay these people sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars, or even billions of dollars, to remind us, or they encapsulate for us, we project onto them our desire to be physically capable. And this is, to me, tragic because all of us need to be physically capable and all of us need to be in nature. And I stopped watching professional sports 25, 30 years ago because I'd rather be a sportsman than watch a sportsman. Let me say this again. I would rather be a sportsman than watch a sportsman. I think if we all started to do this, if we all decided to be rather than to watch, our problems as a society would start to be alleviated because this is part of self-governance. Self-governance includes well-being. Big theme. I want everyone in, in the political to understand that preamble demands that general welfare is the whole point of the whole deal. So when our politicians start talking about war in the Ukraine, what has that got to do with my well-being? What does that got to do with my children's well-being? What has that got to do with your well-being? War in the Ukraine. What is that? When my government talks about $32 trillion of national debt, what does that got to do with my well-being? That makes me a slave, a debt slave. I'm not sure the exact number, but I think every man, woman, and child in this country owes a couple hundred thousand dollars against that $32 trillion in debt, and they're going to collect it from us. So, you know, how does that make me well? What, Mr. Politician, are you going to tell me that reduces that debt so that I'm not a debt slave? Remember that business model, slavery, drugs, piracy? Oh, Mr. politician, you want to talk to me about inflation. Is that not piracy? Are you not taking away my net worth, my purchasing power by inflating the currency? And am I supposed to believe it's an accident? Because I want all of my listeners and viewers to know, inflation is not an accident. It's government policy. So, these PhDs that run our our administration are our, our state, our administrative state, they have decided that they need to inflate the currency. Why? Because there is a shortfall between what we spend and what we take in. Our outgo exceeds our income. And we've been doing it for years, years and years and years, since 2000 at least. We're up to $32 trillion, and I said this in the last podcast. 32 trillion is at least 120% of the gross domestic product of the United States. The total output of the country is less than our debt. And in the history of the world, a sovereign debt that exceeds national output has never been repaid. I personally place a very high value on truth, dependability, transparency if i make a deal to pay you or i say i'm going to give you some money i'm going to give it to you or i'm going to die trying we've lost that spirit if we don't pay that debt back i am because it's my debt we the people i'm going to be crushed by the not paying it back we need as a people to stop and realize that's our debt given to us by our elected representatives who obviously were not concerned about our well-being because they've made us into debt slaves. So let's think about this. Let's get motivated and activated and realize that that debt is a real thing. And when it comes crashing in upon us, it will be like a tsunami wave of economic pain. So when we work on our well-being It's a very broad, almost infinite topic to consider, and we're all considering it. You know, every one of us every day is pursuing well-being in our own way, in our own time. But if we're not taught the occult, and occult just means hidden, doesn't necessarily mean negative, the the essentials of well-being, have been hidden from the people forever. I mean, there's there's a, a great power that a hierarchy can master by making people move up in the hierarchy to learn how to be well. And that's pretty much how all the secret societies function. And now we have the internet, and we have each other, and we can make known to everyone what being well is about. And that's what we need to work on as the American people, well-being. And this Cartesian dualism is really, un, It's a. it's created great unwellness, because it's made us believe, or people have used Cartesian dualism to advance the idea that our minds have no impact on our bodies, that our bodies are machines, and that we turn those machines over to technocrats called doctors who treat these bodies as machines with drugs and chemicals to bring about better results if there's some failure in that machine in your mind how you think your spiritual life which doesn't exist to these darwinists that's why they never admit it as part of the equation what you eat how you move how your emotions are. That's not part of the picture. That's not part of our current health care model. Our current health care model is you go to the doctor, they assess your vitals and your blood work, and they prescribe medicaments to address deficiencies or anomalies in the result. I mean, you're only in there for seven or eight minutes. It's a professional episode. You know, doctors used to have a bedside manner. Doctors aren't in control of doctors anymore. Insurance companies are. And the government is because we have state-mandated health care for all. And that is not well-being care. That is a giant delivery system for drugs and techniques. Those of us who have been sick know that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. If it doesn't, they say, oh, too bad. We're going to manage your disease. You know what? I don't want to be managed or ruled over. I personally want to have faith, and I want to move, and I want to be in nature, and I want to eat right, and I want to sleep right, and I want to address the truths in my life, and then I wait patiently, that word patient, there's a word, go to the hospital, you're a patient, go to the doctor, you're a patient, just be patient, and nature is going to heal you. What happened to that idea? Well, there's no money in it, and it went away. So let us go along here. We've talked about Cartesian dualism, and it drove a wedge between my spirit and my body, and everyone needs to know that wedge is there. And we're all going to work on healing that wedge and removing that dualism and be a unity, a unity. Mind, body, and spirit are one. Our community is one. Our American nation is one. We're one people with one mission the well being for all of us. So let's take a look here at what happened organically in the country as these academics were coming over from Europe and bringing this alien European intellectual tradition here, we also had something going on with our education system in the elementary schools here in the United States. Let's take a look at this next bit.
2: Horace Mann was born in the small town of Franklin, southwest of Boston, to a farming family, family of poor farmers. And between the time he was 10 and the age of 20, he would receive no more than six weeks of schooling every year. He did use the town library and Franklin was fortunate to have a town library actually stocked by Benjamin Franklin. Back in the late 18th century the town wanted to get a new bell. The town was not then known as Franklin. They wrote to Benjamin Franklin and said if you give us two hundred pounds to get a new bell for our meeting house we'll name the town Franklin and Dr. Franklin said he thought that the town could use sense more than sound, so he sent them two hundred pounds worth of books. And they did name the town Franklin somewhat grudgingly and created a town library which Horace Mann used to great effect. When he was twenty years old he enrolled at Brown University. He would have been old, very old at that time to be entering college, but he graduated as the valedictorian and then he practiced law, and he moved to Boston as a lawyer and was also elected by the town of Dedham to the Massachusetts General Court. As president of the Massachusetts State Senate, Mann undertook to improve the way that the mentally ill were treated, building state hospitals. But perhaps his greatest work was as secretary of the newly created Massachusetts Board of Education first one in the United States, Cree established in 1837. And as secretary, Mann traveled to every town in the Commonwealth to inspect the way the schools were conducted, creating in Massachusetts a system of public education funded by tax dollars offering free non-sectarian education to all children. And Mann then called for more funding of public education to offer free non-sectarian education to all children in the Commonwealth. This is at a time of great immigration and it's an imperative for man that the children of immigrants also be educated so that they can be a cult- become part of American society. And as a way of making sure the teachers are properly trained man had the Commonwealth create normal schools that is schools that would create norms or standards for teachers. So in Bridgewater, in Hyannis, in Worcester, in Northampton, and in other parts of the state we have normal schools created really to train mainly young women to be school teachers. In the 20th century these normal schools have emerged as state colleges. This is really the backbone of the Massachusetts State College system the normal schools that man created in the 1840s, and for this work Horace Mann is considered the father of American public education, as he saw that the Constitution required that the town sustain and cherish public education, and he saw that the Commonwealth was not doing an adequate job of this, and then took concrete steps to make sure that every child in Massachusetts was properly educated so that it all could become productive citizens of the Commonwealth.
0: Boy, there's so much there that uh, we could go through it almost line by line. So all over the country, we have these Horace Mann Elementary Schools. Uh, My mother went to Horace Mann Elementary School in St. Paul, Minnesota, and my children went to the same elementary school. So they don't talk a lot about Horace Mann anymore. It's kind of just gone into the... Mushy history down the memory hole, and uh, his influence is pervasive, because as that bit brought out, he's thought of as the father of modern public education. Well, there are some really interesting uh, ideas in there: Non-sectarian education. There's an idea. This was 1837. What happened before 1837? Fathers educated their sons mothers educated their daughters mothers and fathers educated their children and what was the primary thing that was transmitted faith how to live in nature how to farm how to hunt how to build your own house how to make butter how to prepare food how to set a bone how to be well when you live in the natural environment. And that is a genius skill. Native American cultures, genius skills of man in harmony with nature. The natural way in China is man in harmony with the natural way. Judeo-Christianity, the root, was a warrior religion of man living in harmony with nature a very harsh nature, the desert. All over the world, the root before this Cartesian dualism broke out, which was before Horace Mann, people's cultural transmission of knowledge was about maintaining well-being, was about maintaining the connection between man and nature, or man and spirit. And when I say man, of course I mean women. So, please understand my age, my generation. When we talk about man, we mean mankind, we mean womankind, we mean all the human beings on the planet. We learned the fundamentals of falling down and getting up. Here's an interesting one all over the world, COVID had this horrifying effect of mortality and morbidity, but the Africans, who live a lot closer to nature because they're poor, could not afford the Western treatment modalities. And if you look at the map and you look at the morbidity and mortality outcomes associated with COVID-19, Africans who were left on their own did way better than anybody else in the world. Who knows why? Could we... reach? Hey, scientists... Could you research that? Put a little time into leaving people alone and seeing how things turn out. Because maybe God created a world in which human beings can thrive without your help. Maybe we need to dial you in and find out what scientific techniques really contribute to human well-being and what's killing our asses. Let's figure that out. Because we the people are the government We don't have to buy a program that says every scientific invention is a good deal. They're not. Maybe they were like when they came up with, oh, I don't know, the wheel. That's a scientific invention. I'm not going back before the wheel. The wheel's great. Keep the wheel. Okay, let's go to the next one. Let's work through the inventory of scientific achievement. And when we get up to those chemicals that are burning in Palestine, Ohio, poisoning the earth, maybe we need to look at those chemicals and say, I don't know, Doesn't see, here's the benefit, but look at the downside. We need to go through it as we the people. That goes to nuclear energy. That goes to everything. We need to be awake. And think about it, if we all get up and get engaged and really put our, our time into this, this is the most glorious time in human history, at least since World War II. We have the opportunity, the people that are alive here today in this thought experiment, we have the opportunity really to move the needle. You know, if you were 30 years ago, hey, all good. Everybody was just chasing money and running around. There wasn't much impact, okay? Now, anybody that's listening, anybody that wants to, can jump up and be a part of this thing and perhaps be remembered 500 years from now, just like Paul Revere is remembered. The British are coming the British are coming. What's a Paul Revere? He warned us that danger was afoot. He warned us that the global empire was sending in troops to kill us. And we remember them now. Think of all the Paul Revere's that we're all listening to today. They may be remembered a thousand years from now. So please get involved because your will, your, your creativity is suddenly very necessary if we're going to get ourselves out of this spot. Now, this non-sectarian education thing, first of all, this is Massachusetts. And if you've been there, today you know everything is illegal in Massachusetts. It's the most regulated state. Well, hey, there's some other ones, California, Minnesota, everything there is illegal. And that is part of over-governance, over-governing people there are ruled and the first thing that they did 1837 the pace setter this guy was the pioneer of non-sectarian education in other words we're not going to teach anything spiritual in the educational system there will be no religion there will be no sectarian education no sex because what the country had was an enormous amount of immigration People coming from all over Europe, Ireland, Ukraine, Spain. I mean, people were coming from everywhere. And they wanted to melt them all together and create a cohesive society. When I say they, I mean Horace Mann. This was his gift to us. Diversity was not at the top of his list. At the top of his list was homogeneity. Let's make all these immigrants the same. Let's teach them our history the way he wanted to tell the history or his group from these normal schools, the norms, the standards, what they were doing was is they were vetting out teachers and making sure that they taught the state narrative. You will learn what we teach you. Nothing else is important. Then go get a job as a wage slave and die. Not a nice. That's not a well-being model. It's just not. I'm not saying they weren't trying to do something good. I'm not in their heads. But I know the result of a non-sectarian education is political violence filling our cities, of gang members shooting each other wholesale, gun violence blamed on guns. Come on. Really? It's a hunk of metal. Someone has to point it and pull the trigger. That person got a non-sectarian education because if he had a sectarian education as opposed to a Darwinist education, sec- non-sectarian means Darwinist. That's what it means because that's a religion too and we're going to cover that a little bit down the road here. But that when you take out that religious education, people lose the spiritual they lose the sanctity of their life. And when they lose the sanctity of their life, when they no longer are connected to nature, when they don't see miracles in how they walk, just the act of walking, if you become a master at walking, it's a complete well-being practice. If you feel your big toes when you walk and you realize that all movement starts in your big toe, if you get that picture, you're spiritual, and you're going to be very, very hesitant to stick that big toe up somebody else's ass in a fight. You won't want to do it because you're going to value yourself, you're going to value your relationship to nature, and you're only going to be violent when attacked. You will not be aggressive with other people spontaneously because it doesn't work that way. People who are trained, who have well-being as the center of their life, know block first, attack next. Bullies attack first. So all these bullies that are out there, they're just not well. We just need to vote them out of office. All of us need to get in here, bring the well-being concept up, bring it through the whole society, and we're going to help as many people who want to be well as we can as a community, And I'm learning how to be well, and you're learning how to be well, and that's the focus of everything we do. And we're just going to push all these other people to the periphery because they have other agendas, like killing me, and I don't want those people in my government. So we're going to have this thought experiment. We're going to refine it. We're going to redirect it. And we also know that these histories, these histories are interpretive. So these PhDs are going to come up and they're going to say, you can't say that. That's not what we know. Why, Mr. Because I'm a PhD. Oh, really? Who taught you? Another PhD? Who taught him? Another PhD? Who taught him? Another PhD? Do these people really have a corner on truth and on knowledge and on well-being? Because if they did, wouldn't our world be wonderful? If their knowledge and their influence was so well, wouldn't the people be well? When are we going to realize that these people have a credentialization that either, they don't live up to it. Let's not say it's a failure of the institution or a failure of the process, but the people, because they're raised in a Darwinist environment, survival of the fittest, they are missing those elements which would make them humble and put borders on their ambitions. So, we need to work on this. I'm working on it every day. I'm appreciating you being here with me. Let's move on from Horace Mann and this sectarian, this sectarian education, which removes everything spiritual, and realize that our kids are turned over. Even if your children are going to religious school, you've turned them over to other people. Let's think back to the colonists. They educated their own children. We have abd I have abdicated my own responsibility by sending my five children to school. And I'm heartbroken about it because I see the results. So we've really changed human life in a very short period of time because of science. What's good about it, what's bad about it? Sectarian education sucks because the most important part they leave out, the part that makes you well. If I was a conspiracy theorist, which I'm not, because it's just the way the system works, as you grow up without that ability to keep yourself well, suddenly you're at the doctor. Suddenly you're getting surgeries. Suddenly you're taking drugs. Suddenly you're even more dependent on the system. Suddenly you have to vote for a system that gives you free health care because you don't have the money to afford this very expensive health care. I'm not going to say they had it all thought through before they started down this path, but that's where we are, and we need to assess it, we need to understand what's good for the people. Can we play this next one, please?
3: The majority of U.S. churches have applied for and most have received IRS 501c3 tax-exempt status. Being granted 501c3 approval allows churches to be 100% exempt from federal income and property taxes and to receive other favorable treatment under U.S. tax law. Yes, churches that want to offer their worshipers tax-deductible receipts every year for their giving and donations must have 501c3 status. This video will look at whether or not the 501c3 status has been good or bad for U.S. churches and their congregations. A form of a tax-exempt code was actually started back in 1894, but it was reinforced heavily in 1954, through the efforts of Senator Lyndon Johnson. Johnson wanted to silence the influence churches were having on the public, so he created the 501C3 code. While gaining tax-exempt status brings along certain advantages for churches, it also means they forfeit much of their freedom of speech to speak out on many vital issues of the day. They also live under a spirit of fear that if they don't comply with the IRS, that they could lose their tax-exempt rights becoming a state church. 501 c 3 churches in America have a number of supposed advantages over non-code churches. Here are some of them. Nonprofits can pay salaries. Their staffs can make a nice living while doing good. They can give their supporters tax-deductible receipts every year for all cash and non-cash donations, government and private grants. They can pursue grants available only to tax-exempt organizations. Access to government food banks. They can obtain food to give to needy people. Employ fringe benefits. They can acquire fringe benefits for their staffs, generally not available to self-employed people or business owners. This can include life insurance, health insurance, pension and retirement plans discounts on items they purchase at stores and businesses. Many nonprofits and their employees get purchase discounts if they can provide a copy of their 501 status letter from the IRS and many other advantages. Once a church, ministry, or religious organization becomes fully 501 compliant, they'll come under severe scrutiny by the IRS should they do the following. Make disparaging remarks about or criticize any other faith group or religion that publicly declaring we are to obey God rather than government, to support one political candidate or another, to support or encourage the Second Amendment, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, to support or encourage a law-abiding citizen's militia, to criticize globalism or organizations like the United Nations, to criticize governmental agencies or officials, or to refuse to work together with governmental agencies and other denominational churches for the national good during times of crisis and other governmental operations and perhaps there are several more ways to trigger governmental scrutiny on churches but if the main reason for a church to become 501c3 is to obtain tax deductions for their congregants based on their giving a big question has to be asked Shouldn't a donor's heart be giving to a ministry because they want to be faithful to God other than receiving God's blessings, not really expecting anything back in return? It's an interesting thing to ponder. One final note of history, there have been some churches who held the belief that government should hold no authority over the church. A famous case was the Indianapolis Baptist Temple. Their minister, Greg Dixon, refused to withhold taxes and social security payments from its employees' paychecks. A federal district judge, Sarah Evans Barker, ruled the Baptist Temple owed $6 million in back taxes and interest. When the church refused to pay, federal marshals seized the church property Told the church members to vacate it on february 13th 2001 as new church planting grows faith-based ministries gain members and street ministries in the u.s continue to grow it will be interesting to see if their ministries take a different view than mainline traditional churches on the 501c3 issue this is h.a graves
0: oh isn't that special the 501c3 churches in other words on the government payroll, because if you say your allegiance is to God rather than to the government, you could lose your status. You really don't have to think about it much more than that. And you have to look back at who started this, President Lyndon Johnson, who took over as president after President Kennedy had his head blown off for all of us to see. This was Insidious. This is an insidious change in American history, and it goes with the non sectarian education that our children receive and that we received when we went through school. Let's say we went to a religious school. It might have been a 501c3 religious school associated with the church. In other words, government is bigger and more important than God. Otherwise, you can't get the 501c3 status which means you're not on the gravy train. What does it mean? You can collect money, and you don't have to pay taxes, which is exactly the opposite of what Christ said. Render unto Caesar what's due to Caesar, and render unto God what's due to God. And I've said this before, and I'd like to say it again. I always thought that meant pay my taxes. In further contemplation of this, I think there's another element. I think Christ was talking to the religious hierarchy of the Jewish state and telling them, pay off the Romans so they're not involved in our religious life, so that we can maintain our faith. Don't sell out. That's why I turned over the tables of all the money changers, because they were sellouts. Our 501c3 churches Their primary allegiance is to the government, not to faith in God. So how can they, these 501c3 churches and synagogues and mosques, how can they teach the sectarian knowledge of well-being and not be in conflict with the government? And of course, they cannot. So let's take a look at how... Faith has changed. I was raised traditionally. So let's say we had a holiday. The holiday went in the, you know, when we went to church, actually was called a synagogue. We'd show up eight o'clock in the morning. We'd get home nine o'clock at night. Okay, that's some serious work. It's all day. And in fact, that happened once a week on the Sabbath day. Show up there at eight o'clock in the morning, get home four o'clock in the afternoon. It's a little different in these 501c3 environments. Show up at 10, leave at 11, get some pancakes and eggs on the way home, and be in front of your television at 12 o'clock for kickoff. That is not putting faith first. That is not putting well-being first. That is called being involved in an activity. And I'm not, I know there's people of faith out there that, and I'm not trying to make anybody angry with me, But the well-being concept is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So when we shrink the time put into the matters related to spirit to one hour a week, well, let's think about it like we're an athlete. Instead of training every day, doing two a days, two hours in the morning, have lunch, do two or three hours in the afternoon, we're not going to do that. We're going to practice one hour a week. How's the game going to turn out? If we're practicing one hour a week, is that really enough practice to be a winning team one hour a week? We got the sectarian not oh excuse me, the non-sectarian education. So our kids go to school eight to four, non-sectarian, nothing spiritual. Up, oh, but we're going to take them to church for an hour on Sunday, and that's going to get the job done. They're going to the Super Bowl with one hour a week of practice. Sure. Sure. If you want to believe that, okay, maybe it works sometimes. But I'm going to say oftentimes it doesn't work. And why do I say that? Because I look at the data. I look at the number of children and young adults that shoot each other every weekend in Chicago, in Detroit, in Memphis, in, New Jer- in, in Newark, in Minneapolis. If these children and these young adults had a sectarian education they would not be shooting each other. This comes when there is no sectarian education. So our schools have abandoned a sectarian education and our 501c3 religious institutions have to be very careful about what they say. They cannot preach any gospel or any uh, religious ideas which put them in conflict with the government, which means that what? That means that the government is actually the religion. The government is controlling the religious activity of all these institutions. Unless, of course, you're a member of a non-government school or a non-government church or synagogue or mosque. I mean, there are some traditionalists out there, but they're few and far between. We kind of laugh at them, like the Amish. Oh, look at these goofballs. You know, horse and buggy, they don't have cars. Hey, guess what? If these globalists get their way and this nuclear war happens, remember this scripture, the meek shall inherit the earth. Who are the meek? I never knew. I thought that sounded kind of strange when I read it the first time. How are the meek going to inherit anything? They're meek. The strong, survival of the fittest, you know, that Darwinist idea. Hey, guess what? When all the Darwinists wipe each other out, the people that know how to farm, life goes on. No change for them. No change. Get up in the morning, work the land, bring in the harvest, live in nature. You know, some of them, I can say this because I know many Native Americans who have told me, when the white man kills himself out, when the globalists get their way and everybody's wiped out, the Native Americans get their land back. They're just waiting patiently, patient, because if you're patient, nature will heal you. Sometimes it takes hundreds of years. People generally don't have that kind of patience. So what I'm talking about here is a return to a sectarian education, a return to an emphasis on well-being that has to include a relationship between me and the natural way. And I said previously, there's the Jewish, the Jewish tradition, there's the Islamic tradition, there's the Christian tradition, they're all the Abrahamic faiths, they're all very similar. But if you only know the Jewish and you don't know the Christian, you're missing half the story. Or as Bob Marley's saying, half the story has never been told. And if you only know the Christian tradition, and you don't know the Jewish tradition, again, half the story has never been told. But if you know the Judeo-Christian tradition in total, and you don't know the natural natural way, again, Bob Marley is right. Half the story has never been told. Please remind me, we're going to start with that song next time. Half the story has never been told, now you see the light. Stand up for your rights. Get up, stand up is the song. Get up, stand up. Half the story has never been told. Now you see the light. Stand up for your rights, American people. Stand up for your well-being. Stand up for the well-being of your children. Stand up for the well-being of our community. Stand up for the well-being of America. And let us move to the periphery as irrelevant. These crazy bald heads that have all this ambition for the global governance And for the scientific technocracy and all the things they want to bring forth that are related to the scientific method, transhumanism, which we're going to talk about, and artificial intelligence, and digitized realities, and a digital prison for you and me, let's just push them off to the side, vote them off. We don't have to fight with them. We just need to show up and self-govern and practice our well-being. That's it. But right now, we're not doing it. And what's happened? Let's look at the decline of religious life in America. Fewer people. A recent Pew Research study says that fewer people are identifying with religion in the United States. The study predicting that by 2070, Christianity could make up less than half of the American population if this trend continues on. Now part of the shift is coming from those who are under the age of 30 who had once identified as Christian and then switched to non-religious. One nun that we spoke with at Bennett Hill Monastery in Black Forest is saying that when she decided to become a nun in 2001, she was the first to join the sisters in 25 years. And in order to keep religion alive, she does believe those who are religious need to be willing to listen to others. Sitting down like we are doing. And we're talking, and you have the freedom to ask your questions. And I'm vulnerable enough and transparent enough to tell you. It's a a hard journey. This is not an easy life. Well, News 5's Natalie Chuck is sitting down with people on both sides of the religious divide, and her story will air tonight at 6 o'clock. Thank you very much. So here we have it. You have a one-hour church gathering at a 501c3 ministry. And what happens? You cannot BS children. What did this nun say? I'm, I'm vulnerable enough and I'm transparent enough to let you ask any question. Well, how do you ask any questions when you have one hour in a congregation and everybody's off to go get some pancakes and then get home in time to watch the football game? You know, you can't kid the kids. The kids are not, the children are not getting the nourishment, the spiritual nourishment that they need. What do they do? They blame faith instead of the institution because they don't know they're at a 501c3 religious institution. They don't know. Their parents take them to church. Their parents take them to synagogue, and it's empty. There's no spiritual life there. And they go, what the hell am I doing here? I got other things to do and they fall away from the from this natural path this natural path of man connected to nature they just they just go do something else and this kind of thing is is getting more and more pervasive and but you know interesting people are very unhappy people are smart I'm smart I mean I I remember I went through this in my life I said whoa this spiritual tradition is not working for me. I actually went to the head guy, the head man. I have a big problem. Please give me the secret knowledge to help me with my big problem. He didn't have any secret knowledge. He said do what your doctor tells you to do. I thought to myself that's not very helpful. So I went to the natural way. I took my shoes off and I walked on the ground three times a day in the snow didn't matter. I didn't care what time of the year it was. I walked on the ground barefoot. Hey, I feel great. I feel great. I'm not saying it works for everybody, but it worked for me. So I can only be a a a, a, a broadcaster who's saying there is something to this natural way. There is something to this spiritual life that we're losing, and we're losing it because of this sectarian. Nope. Excuse me non-sectarian education. And what do they teach us? Well, right now they're not teaching anything because we're caught up in all these other uh, social, anthropological affectations in the public schools, which remember, let's just get them educated so they can get a job and they go into the assembly line on the way to meet the maker. Or in this case, the crematorium. Because there is no maker. These people are Darwinists. So they just want to get people on the assembly Train people to be at school at 8 o'clock in the morning, just like you have to be at work at 8. Train people to take a half-hour lunch, nice and just like at work. Train people to go home at 4 when the whistle blows, just like at work. It's just a giant training thing to get people into the workforce and to use them. And, of course, now, because we're moving into this period of robotics and artificial intelligence, we don't need as many of these people. Oops. and life expectancy is dropping down. What a shock. I don't know how that could be. Maybe we could think about it. I'm not saying anybody's planning this, but it is a little suspicious to me. There is a correlation. The rise of science and the less humanity is needed, and there's less humanity needed. Wow. How does that work out? Something for me to think about. Anyhow, In the few minutes I have left, I want to emphasize how powerful it will be for each one of us to get out of this Cartesian dualism and spend our time in movement, physical movement, emotional movement, and intellectual movement. What is the intellectual movement? Identifying the contradictions in modern life and talking about them. Let me give you an example of how this gets stifled. Right here in my own state, I'm involved in the political. Nobody wants to talk about politics in the political. Why? Because we don't agree with each other. And Oh, my goodness gracious. If we don't agree, there's conflict. Horrified. We can't have conflict. We have to have consensus. Consensus about what? The status quo. Life is good. We can't have conflict. And I look at the evidence. Again, virgin nuclear war. trillion of debt, and life expectancy is falling, and nobody wants to talk about it, they actually shut me up. I actually have to fight back because they attacked me first. I don't want to have conflict, but when conflict finds me, I will defend myself. And what I'm defending is my right to reveal the contradictions to my fellow American citizens the contradictions which lead us into a world where we have drugs, slavery, and piracy as our fundamental business model. We have to call this out. That is the movement of the intellect. What is the movement of the emotional? I have to have the courage to confront my own shortcomings, my own inequities, my own sin, and continuously try to work with myself, and it's a constant battle for me. I hope it's not for you, but for me, I'm engaged in a constant battle to reach a higher level of truthfulness within my emotional life. So I'm not afraid of of criticism. I'm not afraid of critique. I'm not afraid of of, uh, making a mistake and falling down, because I know how to get up. I can still get on that ground and get up like that, like a cat. So this is my skill. I've developed it. And I, I do it, I don't know, four or five times a week. I just get down and get up, get down and get up, get down and get up with style, really stylishly. And when I get done, I go, wow, that was cool. I'm feeling good. I'm looking good. My health is good. It's part of this internal diagnosis I've got going on. How's my body working? And when I can get up like that, hey, I'm ready for anything. So we've got this emotional piece where we have to work on it. And then we have this physical piece. And guess what? This whole taxonomy, mind, body, spirit, that's a scam. That's just a break apart so we can take a look at all the different pieces that go into me as a human being but actually there is no mind body and spirit there's just me and when i train my body i train my spirit and when i train my spirit i train my body and when i train my emotions i train all of me so when i get better at playing the piano because i practice the piano i actually get better at movement when i get better at movement I get better at singing when I get better at singing I'm able to think about how I sound talking to you and that's one of the things I'm gonna be working on in these future podcasts what is the best presentation of my voice of myself so that my viewership expands because I'm doing this to reach millions of people to create a community that's what the free people of America is all about creating a people's union a people's union that is focused on human well-being so that we can provide for the general welfare, provide for the common defense, to ensure domestic tranquility, to create a more perfect union. That's what we're doing. There's nothing. All these distractions, movies and sports and whatever it is, everybody needs some entertainment but we've been broken away from what the essential elements are of having an American community. And while we're pursuing all of our interests, a very small group, super small group of people, and in many cases they're evil people, have moved in, taken over the political, and they rule over us because we say to them like we had the last Uh, podcast. I played Bill Withers, Use Me. We just say, hey, use me. It's so good. This material high is so good. I just get my phone out and I go on an app and bang, three days later, it shows up at my house. And you'll notice I'm not mentioning any names, but you know who they are. And you know how addictive it is to get on there and spend that money. And it's digital. It's not even real money. We're being broken away from the concept of real money and that breaks us away from the concept of real work and real work involves my body. And they're taking that all away. And when I say they, we're naming people. And I named the great, 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 great grandfather of this whole problem. His name is Rene Descartes, Cartesian dualism. Look it up. And I look at the dualism in myself And I go, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to be ruled by a philosopher that lived hundreds of years ago. He can have his ideas. It was an experiment. I'm not going to attribute any negativity to him. I know other people used it negatively with intent, but I'm not interested in the negativity. I'm interested in the human experiment that there's billions of us globally, hundreds of millions of us, Nationally, nation-state, the nation of America has 350 million human souls living in nature. And if we come together as one people with one goal, our well-being and the well-being of our children, these people who are not focused on our well-being, who are focused on their greed and their lust and all the other things that they're focused on, taking from me because I'm giving it to them, Uh uh-uh, I'm done, not giving it to you anymore. I'm saying no more. I'm saying it's over. And if millions of people join me, it will be over. We'll create a new community. We'll create a new set of standards. We'll bring back sectarian information to the society which is about the connection of man to nature and the man to spirit, which allows for sacred honor to come back into our personal relationships where we tell each other the truth, we don't stab each other in the back, our word is our bond, and we proceed with the community's well-being as the most important thing in our minds. When we reach that place, we won't need communism because we'll be a community. You notice the similarity to those words? Community and communism? Remember I said how smart these intellectual these intellectual people were, like taking the word welfare, which means well-being, and turning it into a government program, or taking the word equity, which means my value, and turning it into everybody's the same. These people are really tricky with this stuff. We have to be smart. We have to be educated. And that's why. This podcast is a little bit highbrow at one level, but at another level, I'm saying if you can, with your doctor's permission, get on the floor and get up and get on the floor and get up. That's not very highbrow, that's movement. So I want to leave you with that thought, and I'm going to look forward to seeing you again. I want to thank you for being here today. Go click that subscribe button and find free people of America, find free people radio and join this community and let's get something done. Thank you very much.